And uh, so don't let the message stop you from that, you know, from doing that. All right? And uh, don't live another moment in fear of what, what if or what will. I'd like to ask you this morning to turn to, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Again, I do want to reiterate the pastor's out of town, and uh, I'm one of the assistant pastors here. Um, but I want to encourage you, if you're visiting today, come back and hear the pastor. I don't preach like him. I'm not him, and uh, he's different than me. And uh, so I want to encourage you to come back and hear him when you have the opportunity. In Matthew chapter 17 this morning, I'm going to read a few verses and uh, a bit of a story. Matthew chapter 17, verses number 14 and 15, then we'll skip to verse number 18. So if you have your Bibles there, you can uh, look at that. If nobody has a Bible and you're sitting next to you, please share with them. Let them see the Word of God. And uh, Matthew chapter 17 and verse number 14, it says, And when they were come to the multitude, there came, a, uh, there came to him a certain man, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic, a lunatic and sore vexed. For he oft times falleth into the fire, and oft into the water. In verse number 18, it says, And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. In this passage we just read, in these verses that I read this morning, and we'll come back and fill in the blanks here, but in, in those verses I read this morning, there is a, an astounding miracle takes place. A father who obviously loves his son greatly brings him to Jesus, and and says, Jesus, uh, would you heal my son? And it's not simply a, a plea for healing like in other cases in the Bible where somebody is paralyzed or somebody is ill, somebody is sick. And this is a whole different scenario. This young boy, this lad, is possessed with a demon. You can imagine the, the urgency with which this father was begging Jesus to heal his son. I can imagine if it was my son, I would be quite passionate about this, the situation. Lord, you've got to do something to help me out here. We've tried everything. I can imagine at that point where he brought him to Jesus, there was not an option that they hadn't exhausted already. And he comes very passionately asking, Lord, have mercy on my son. This scenario, without a doubt, is an extremely dramatic one. You can imagine the father coming with much passion, asking for his son to be healed. But outside of that, think of all the surrounding situation. He has his son who's possessed with a demon with him. His son, I'm sure, is going nuts. He even describes his son as oftentimes throwing himself in the fire and into the water. His son was suicidal at best, just wanted to hurt himself. And so it's a dramatic scenario. Passionate father pleading for help. Crazy lunatic son going nuts. And then on top of that, the Bible says that there's a multitude already there. I'm sure the whole multitude wanted to see Jesus as well. And so you can imagine in this scenario, it's, it's quite a dramatic uh, situation. A lot going on. And I can just see Jesus' response. Because in five simple words here in the verse, it says, And Jesus rebuked the devil. That was it. There was no to-do. There was no fanfare. Jesus rebuked the devil. The Bible says he departed out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Hey, the, the devil didn't go into remission. It didn't go and didn't come back later on. It says that he was cured from that very hour. Man, it's an amazing, amazing story. It really is. A lot of times we read these in, with such casualness. 
about what is happening in this scenario, in this, in this situation, but it's, it's so much more than just a simple story. I'm a bit of a pessimist, and I'll admit it. And a lot of times I do see the negative in situations. And when I read this story, I just don't see the miraculous. I see a very strong undertone, actually, of failure. Failure on the part of the disciples. You see in those verses that I skipped over, verse 16 and 17, we see the, the disciples' failure revealed. It says, And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not hear him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. Then Jesus rebuked the devil, and the boy was cured from that very hour. The disciples had the opportunity to cure this young boy. The, young, the father, it explains here that the father came to the disciples first, and when the father comes to Jesus, he said, Jesus, I, I've been to your disciples already, and they couldn't do it. Can you do something for me? Can you help me out in this situation? Jesus doesn't respond to the father right away. He turns to his disciples, and he says, Oh, you faithless and perverse generation. How long do I have to suffer you? How long am I going to be with you? Then he turned and addressed the boy and dealt with the situation. I've always thought that that response seemed a little harsh. I mean, I have no doubt that the disciples did everything within their power to try to heal that boy. The father came and pleaded with the disciples the same way that he pled with God. I have no doubt that those disciples exhausted everything that they knew. They did everything within their power to try to heal that boy. Wouldn't you agree with me this morning? That they did their very best? I, I have no doubt of it this morning. They did their very best in trying to heal that young boy. But then Jesus turns around and says, Oh, you faithless and perverse generation. Seems a little harsh. Who's to blame? I mean, they're just humans after all. This is Jesus versus the, the disciples. Of course Jesus can do it. Why couldn't the disciples? Well, I think their failure is highlighted by what had happened previously in this passage. And that's why it stood out to me so much this morning, because if you go back to verse number 1, and if you would look there this morning, in Acts chapter 17 and verse number 1, there's a story that happens... In verse number 1, it says, And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. This story here is commonly referred to as the Mount of Transfiguration. You may have heard it. Those of you who come from the Catholic Church, this is a, a big component of their faith, Transfiguration. Uh, but that's not true the way that they teach it. I'm not here this morning uh, to address that. I just want to address this story and what we can learn from these disciples. We see in this passage that Jesus took three disciples and he took Peter, James, and John into a mountain with him. It's on this mountain that Jesus is transfigured. Literally, to change. He was changed. On that mountain, in the moment, he completely changed form. The Bible says that his face and his garments began to glow. There was something completely different about this man. The man who walked up to the mountain, up to the top of that mountain, with Peter, James, and John, was not the same man in that moment of transfiguration. Something changed 
in him. Not only did that take place and Jesus revealed himself, what happened in a transfiguration, by the way, is Jesus revealed himself in all his glory to his disciples. He showed them a little glimpse of what he really was. A little bit of an angelic form, I guess you could say. But that wasn't all that took place. The Bible says that then Moses and Elias, the prophet Elijah, appeared. So, picture this with me. Three disciples up on a mountain, set apart. Jesus all of a sudden is transfigured. He begins to glow. His face begins to shine. Completely different man. Pretty phenomenal, right? And then all of a sudden, these two men, Moses and Elijah, figureheads, uh, patriarchs of the faith, of the, of the, uh, the Hebrew culture, that they would have known exactly who, were, who they were right away. They saw these two men. All right. Dead for hundreds of years. There they are, standing before Peter, James, and John. Jesus stood there talking. He stood there talking with Elias, Elijah, and Moses. The Bible says that Peter comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, do you want me to, to set up some tents here for you and your friends? Do you want me to pitch, pitch tabernacles for you? And the Bible says immediately that as he was speaking in verse uh, number 5, it says that while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus. Many of you may be wondering in your mind right now, what does this have to do with the boy who was possessed with a demon? You know, many times in Scripture, if you read through it, it's not chronological, as in it does not happen in the exact timeline that you're reading. But in this scenario, it does. The boy being healed of a demon, being cured from demon possession, would have happened just a couple days after this scenario. A couple days after Jesus was transformed, transfigured, on that mountain. The events that unfolded on that mount of transfiguration are so much more than just Jesus performing another miracle. And we have to understand that before we get to the next story. Jesus was preparing his disciples for what was about to happen. Not the demon possession, but Jesus Christ's crucifixion on the cross. He was preparing his disciples for what was about to take place. It wouldn't be much longer before he was taken arrested, before he was beaten, before he was uh, mocked and, and, uh, and just tortured uh, to the point of being beyond human recognition. But also, on this mountain, he was teaching them another lesson. He was showing them that him being there his presence and all of his glory as it was revealed to them was so much more than just a miracle. It was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. So Moses in the Old Testament is a picture of the law. The law was required for salvation. And so Moses appears to, God, to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But also alongside Moses is Elias, the prophet. And, and he is the greatest of all the prophets, as in Elijah was never killed or died. He was taken to heaven. 
Elijah represents the prophetic books of the Bible, all of the Old Testament prophecy. And so here on the mountain where Jesus is demonstrating all of his glory and all of his power and all of his strength to these three disciples, he also is fulfilling in the same moment that, hey, the, the law and the prophets, they're all about to pass away because I'm going to fulfill it all on the cross. Amen. And so on the hill here on this mountain where Jesus is being transfigured, he is stepping out in such a great way, demonstrating himself to these disciples. Now follow along with me, if you will. Not only that, but then a voice comes from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. If you think back to Moses' day when the law was received, there was a moment where God's voice spoke from heaven as well. He came down in a great cloud around Mount Sinai in fire and lightning, and he spoke to the people and said, Here is my law. Obey it. But once again, God's voice is speaking from heaven and he's saying, here is my son. Obey him. Hear him. It's the transition from the law being required for salvation to grace. God is now taking the authority off the law and he's placing the authority on his son. The authority to forgive sin. This is, without a doubt, a momentous occasion. But... There was a lesson here for the disciples. A personal, direct lesson. Right to Peter, James, and John. I mean, can you imagine this kind of lesson? Jesus hit on all the points that a good teacher has. He was dynamic. He had flashing lights, voices from heaven, and men from the dead appeared. I think he would have your attention. All right? And I'm pretty sure he would have our attention as well. We would be paying attention. We would be listening to what he had to say. But it was missed. It was missed. The lesson that we can completely trust in God, he's fulfilling his promises, he's going to do what he said, he's always on our side, he will come through for us every single time. Everything that he was saying on that Mount of Transfiguration by saying, I'm getting rid of the law and I'm going to become your substitution. The, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ is on demonstration. And here at this moment where he is completely putting himself out there for all for his disciples to see in such candid behavior, they miss the opportunity to learn the lesson that my God is sufficient, that he can handle anything. Peter comes up and says, can I pitch tents for you? He's a little bit of star, starstruck. I don't know. You know I, I try to picture everything in my mind. and you know, Give me a little creative liberty here. But James and John, they're not mentioned. I imagine James and John are off to the side with their jaws on the ground. <laughs> Jesus is glowing. His clothes are glowing. A voice is speaking from heaven, and two dead men are here. All right? I think we can relate to that. But then here's Peter. Hey, Jesus, great illustration. I love what you're doing here. Can I set up some tents for you and your friends? What's the deal, Pete? What are you doing? The opportunity is completely missed. The lesson is completely overlooked. And so then a couple days later, the opportunity presents itself for these men to demonstrate some faith in the God who just so majestically put himself on display for them. And they miss it. This morning I want to preach a message to you on how to miss out on the miraculous. 
how to miss out on the miraculous. Father, Lord, I pray that you would anoint me with your spirit. Lord, I pray that I'd only say what you have for me to say. Lord, I pray that I'd be clear, that I wouldn't fumble over the words or the thoughts that you have for me this morning. Lord, I pray that they would be received well, that our hearts would be tender to what you have for us. Lord, that we would get gleaned from these truths and apply them to our lives, that they wouldn't be forgotten as we leave this church building this morning. In your name we ask it. Amen. How to miss out on the miraculous. I want you to know the first thing with me this morning is in Matthew chapter 17 and verse number 4. And if you're still there, please look at it. Matthew chapter 17, verse 4. It says, Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. We see here the first mistake I've kind of already touched on a little bit. The opportunity where Peter had to learn. The first way and the thing that you need to do if you want to miss out on the miraculous, the opportunities in your life that are presented to you to see miracles take place, you want to miss out on those, here's the first thing. Work when it's time to worship. Work when it's time to worship. Peter has been taken along with James and John. He's on this special trip with Jesus and at the very moment in which Jesus, the Son of God, let's not miss that, the Son of God is trying to encourage his disciples. He's trying to instill in them some more faith. He's trying to show them, hey, the road ahead is about to get pretty rough. It's going to be rough for me, or rougher for me than it's going to be for you. But it's going to be difficult, and I want you to have confidence that I'm going to pull through for you. You're not going to have to depend on this law forever. You can depend on me. I will provide salvation. At this very moment, they miss out completely on the opportunity presented to them. We see that they just get, or Peter, just gets busy. What can I do, God? Can I put up a tabernacle for you and Moses and Elias, this was not the time to be building tabernacles, and there is a time to work. This was a time to learn an important lesson. And he missed it. Missed it completely. Missed it by that much. All right? Completely. I mean, it wasn't, he wasn't even close. The other day I went out shooting with Brother Ray Troyer. I wouldn't want to be on the other end of his gun for any reason. But he, he is a tremendous shot. Not so much me. You ever miss a target? And you just, man, Peter, he just completely missed it here. Yeah, I don't know where his bullets landed. Missing everything that God had offered to him at this very moment. We're guilty of the same thing. Listen, this is why we're guilty of it. Because in the moments where God wants to do the greatest and we see him working the most, what do we often do? We try to grab onto that moment. We feel like we've got to jump in and do something. I see God working in other people's lives. I gotta get busy. I see something going on in that church. I see that the pastor or the preacher is he's fired up and he's excited about what's going on in his Christian life. And he's my Sunday school teacher is just excited and he's constantly learning. And we look at him and we say, Man, God is just moving, and we are like, oh man, I gotta get busy. But in that moment where God is revealing himself, where he's doing something miraculous, there are those times where we have just got to stop. 
And we've got to learn the lesson that God has for us in that very moment. Because there's going to come an opportunity down the road for us to perform the miraculous through God. With His strength. But if we never learn how beforehand, we're going to miss the opportunity. And that's exactly what happens to these disciples. Now I believe there is a very specific reason why these three men were chosen to go up with Jesus into this mountain. And again... It's just what I know of these men. It's not anything that's stated uh, positively in the word of God. It's simply this, that I don't believe these disciples were taken with Jesus because they were the weakest of the disciples. I don't think they were taken with Jesus because they, already, because they were really lacking faith. I don't think they were taken with Jesus because they didn't love him. I believe that these three disciples were taken with Jesus because they probably loved him the most. They probably trusted him the most. You look at Peter, and he had already been grilled by Jesus over and over again. Lovest thou me more than these? Yes, Lord, I love you. And he comes out of that, and God agrees with him. Yes, Peter, you do love me. We look at John, and John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Spoken from John's words. But he would also be the son, the replacement son to Mary. That's a pretty close relationship there. I think he loved him. James, James, well, he would be the first to be martyred. Of all the apostles, the first to be martyred. I, I'm pretty sure he was dedicated to Jesus. Pretty sure he loved him. I don't think any of these men were lacking in love or uh, lacked that. They didn't have any faith at all. And yet they still missed out on what was taking place in this mountain. Because they just got busy and missed the lesson. I think a lot of times in our lives we're the same way. Sure, we love God, and I have no doubt that you have a love for God in your heart. But he's trying to teach you a lesson. He's trying to make something obvious to you. And it, it may be even something as obvious as transfiguration and dead men appearing. But we completely miss it because we're busy. We love him so much, we just get so busy. Does that make sense? Do you see what's happening in this story? It happened again in another story in the Bible where Mary and Martha got a little bit busy. And God says, oh, Martha, you're comforted about with so much. There's so much you're worried about. You're trying to serve and work. But Mary, she's chosen the good part. She's chosen to sit and learn while I'm with her. I want to encourage you this morning. If you don't want to miss out on the miraculous, don't work when it's time to worship. Don't work when it's time. Don't be so busy loving and serving God that you miss the lessons he's trying to teach you. Secondly, this morning, we miss out on the miraculous. Because we're weak when it's time for warfare. Because we're weak when it's time for warfare. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 16 and 18, 16 through 18, the Bible says, And I brought him to thy disciples. This is the father speaking of his son. And they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. The Bible is very clear, Christian, today, that you've got battles to face. We've all got battles to face. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it tells us, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We have battles that we have to face every single day, uh, every single day in our life. But if we're honest, we don't see near as many victories as we could. I know that I don't. 
And as I look around at a room full of human beings, I'm convinced this morning that you probably don't see as many victories as you could either. Jesus describes the disciples in one swell swoop. He <laughs> describes their generation and our generation. He says, oh, faithless and perverse generation. You say, Brother Camel, you've already been here and you said that that was a little harsh. Well, it is a little harsh, but, you know, sometimes the truth does, you know, rub a little bit the wrong way. The truth of the matter is the reason that these men did not see the miraculous happen is because they were too weak when it came time for that spiritual warfare. They were faithless. And the reason today that we don't see the victories that we need or could win in our lives is because we're faithless. And the Bible even goes a step further and says perverse. And this is not the same as perverted. It's not an immoral uh, sexual thought process. It's not what perverse means at all. Perverse is the root of perverted. But what perverse uh, means is a deliberate and obstinate desire to behave in a way that is unreasonable or unacceptable, regardless of the consequences. He was telling his disciples, disciples, you're, you're not getting the picture here. You can have faith in me. I will come through for you. Stop being so obstinate. Stop trying to accomplish this in your flesh. You're being perverse in your decision making. You keep feeling like you are going to get a different result by trying the same crazy method over and over and over again. But it's not going to happen. And here the disciples, it comes time for them to have the opportunity to cast out a devil. And this father comes and pleads pleads with them. And these disciples, I have no doubt, they go through everything they know how to, to try to get rid of this devil. But they're just obstinate, trying to accomplish something in their flesh. And we see the consequence. The boy wasn't cured. And if Jesus wasn't there, he wasn't present, the boy wouldn't have been cured. And why wouldn't he have been cured? Not because the power wasn't accessible to those men, but because the men did not possess the power. They were weak when it was time for warfare. This thought leads me to believe that more than ever, many Christians are not even consciously aware. We're not consciously aware, listen to these words, of our spiritual condition. The disciples tried. They thought they could do it. They felt like they had enough power to cast out the devil, but it did not happen, did it? They didn't know why. They weren't even aware. Because they missed the lesson altogether when it came time for the warfare. They had completely missed it so badly that they were completely oblivious to their spiritual condition. That they needed more faith. I think a lot of times today we've lived so long as Christians with a perverse lifestyle that we no longer can identify what is unreasonable or unacceptable behavior. It happens a lot to us. We self, listen, listen to this statement. We self-diagnose our condition based upon remedies we have in place rather than the obvious symptoms of illness. We say, I've got a problem, but I've got all these remedies in place, so I'm okay, and ignore that the sickness is still there. Let me try to illustrate this 
best I can. A patient walks into a doctor's office, and the doctor observes his physical condition. He draws blood, he runs tests. He comes back to the patient and explains that there are several illnesses present in the body. He describes the symptoms of which the patient can relate to. But the patient responds, there's no way I have those illnesses. I take a multivitamin every day. I work out. I eat healthy. I eat my vegetables. There's no way I'm sick like that. I take care of myself. I'm good. Because he's doing everything he should do to be healthy, right? And so he feels as though because he's doing everything that he should be doing, he thinks he is anyway, just like the disciples thought they could cast out the demon and they were wrong. But here he is thinking that he's got everything squared away to be right with God, or this, this person that's sick, he's got everything squared away to be healthy. He says, no, I can't be sick like that. I know I, I see all those symptoms and everything, but I can't be sick like that because I have all the remedies in place already. We go along in our Christian lives denying the fact that we have a serious problem in our hands. We go along feeling justified in our sin because we go through the proper motions of Christianity. But we're missing the cure. And here the disciples were too weak when it came time and they felt like they should be able to do it. And they went through every motion. I'm sure they did all of the hocus pocus and cast the demons out and prayer and this and Sprinkle holy? No, they didn't do any of that stuff, all right? But uh, whatever they did, their method of how they would heal people in that time. I'm sure they went through the whole process, and at the end, they're like, why isn't it working? Because you're missing something. We miss it. We miss that we have a spiritual condition that needs to be cured. Sure, we attend church, we pass out tracts, we read our Bibles. Uh, you know, we pray, we attend the occasional special service at church, and boom, 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 we mark it off the checklist, and it's like, no, I can't, there's no, no, there's no way I have that problem. There, there's no way I'm not right with God. I do this, 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 and this, and this. We have the remedies, and so there can't be a problem. The motions don't win the battles. And here, the disciples go through the motions. I go through the motions. There are times I go through the motions. And then I step back and I say, but why isn't anything changing? Why don't I have more fullness of the Spirit? Why can I not overcome this temptation? Why has it been a struggle for 20 years of my life? You look at these things and you say, well, why, but why, but why, but why? It's because you're just completely missing the scenario. There's something completely off here. Faithlessness. You're really not trusting God to work things out in your life. You're trusting yourself. You're trusting your emotion that you can work through it in your flesh. It says here in this passage that opportunity presented itself to these disciples and they went through all their motions in the flesh so they knew what to do, but it yielded defeat. It yielded defeat. They didn't get to see the miraculous take place simply because of one reason, faithless and perverse. They just went ahead with what they knew to do and that was it. That was good enough for them. 
Church, is that good enough for us this morning just to go through life knowing what to do and just going and checking off our routine? Sure, you post to Facebook every morning what your devotion was. Great, I'm glad you're having devotion. That's awesome. But is that just the motion? And I know this is such a rudimentary principle that motions don't win the battles. But I know in my life how much I struggle with it. You're making me feel alone up here. Do you want to see the miraculous take place? Yes. You just can't go through the motions. It ain't going to work for you. I don't care if you're going soul winning every week. It's just a motion. It's nothing. I don't care if you wake up every morning and you read your Bible. I don't care if you get up every morning and you pray that hallowed prayer. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for another day of hell. Thank you for moving me along and giving me a good job. And thank you for the food I'm going to eat today. And we just go through these little motions, tick-tock, 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 and then the real warfare comes, and we fall down flat on our face, and we're saying, but why? Because it's for a week, when it's time for warfare. Finally this morning, the last reason why we will miss out on the miraculous is because we wonder why, but always waver. We wonder why, but always waver. Matthew chapter 17, verse 19 and 20, listen to me, it says, as we read here the word of God, then came the disciples to Jesus apart, and they said, Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove. And nothing shall be impossible for you. The disciples come to Jesus and say, Why could we not do it? And he said, It's not because you don't have the power. The access to the power. It's not because there's anything that actually could stop you. If you would just have the faith the size of a mustard seed, there would be nothing stopping you from the miraculous. <clears throat> but they missed out on the miraculous, and here they are wondering why. I think a lot of times we miss out on the miraculous, and we wonder why, but we always waver. And that's why this point is we wonder why, but always waver. Because there's nothing wrong with wondering why. You don't have the power of God or why things aren't going the way that they are. The Bible says we're supposed to examine ourselves. We're supposed to try the matter. We're supposed to figure out why things aren't right. But we just go ahead and we figure out why and we figure we know what it is. Maybe it's why do I not get anything from God's word? You ever ask that question to yourself? Why am I not getting anything from God's word? Maybe why don't I see any personal growth? Why do I still doubt my salvation after so many years? Why am I struggling in my marriage? Remember, you're going through all these motions already. Why are my kids constantly bucking the authority and it's just turmoil in the home? Why am I not being used in the ministry? Maybe you're asking yourself, why am I not further along as a Christian than I am right now? Maybe ask yourself the question, why is the preacher always preaching on the same thing? Maybe there's those questions of why that you ask. And when you ask those questions, you... Come to an answer. But, well, let me illustrate it. I can ask myself, Steve, why are you gaining weight? And I am. Why are you gaining weight? Why are you gaining weight? Helping me in all the wrong places. Why are you gaining weight? And I say to myself, I know why. Because when it's the option of salad or the large french fry, 
Extra salt, please. All right? I know why. There's good. I, that's good. I need to know why. But then here's the problem. The next time that that opportunity presents itself, I've had a lot of french fries lately. All right? Because I asked the question why, and I understood why, but now I waver. And every time that opportunity comes back at me and gives me the chance to correct the problem, I asked why, I got the solution, I know what it is, but then I waver the next time it comes along. We go through our Christian lives all the time asking questions, the whys. We know the answers to every single one of them. Most of you do. You understand what the problem is. You understand it's not right. You know the truth behind the reason why you doubt your salvation? It's probably because you're not saved. It's probably the truth. God doesn't cast doubt on salvation. The devil wants to cause doubt. He wants to cause you to question. And he'll keep you by pride from actually getting saved, if that makes any sense at all. But it will constantly be ignored because when it comes down to the chance to make the decision to change it, you won't want to humble yourself. And even though you could do it over and over and over again in the privacy of your home, it will never be what it should be. And you will constantly doubt because you'll never go before somebody and say, I just accept Jesus Christ my Savior finally last night after 20 years after 10 years, after five years of doubting, and I just know I wasn't saved, but finally last night, I'm coming before the church today, I'm going to get baptized, I'm so excited the Lord saved me. But the pride is keeping me from doing that. Why? You're going to keep asking that why, and you'll never see the miraculous, and in that case, the miracle of salvation take place in your life because you're constantly waiting. <coughs> up and down, up and down. Maybe you're faced with the why of why is my marriage struggling? I'm doing everything that I know to do. I'm being the... the, the this, that, the other thing. You can say you're doing what you what you think you should be doing, but the truth is, if both parties were doing what they should be doing, it wouldn't be struggling. But we as the husbands don't want to step up in our role as the spiritual leader of the home and be the spiritual leader of the home and put down the, the law according to the word of God and enforce it with the strength that a of the man should do in the home, and then the wife, on the other hand, maybe doesn't feel that the home is so much the role that she should play, that she should be help supporting her family, when that's not biblically the truth. You should be at home and, and raising the kids. If the kids are present outside of a family that's there, then that's a different prerogative up to the, the husband and the wife to decide on. But the truth is that there is an answer to that why. But we don't want to become a spiritual leader because, after all, it's too much work to make sure that my family is spiritually where they should be when I'm not spiritually where I should be. And it's too much to ask my wife to do the things that I, she should be doing when I'm not doing the things that I should do. You see, there's a whole, there's a whole uh, problem, a domino effect here, where things don't happen the way that they should happen. And we ask ourselves, why, 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 over and over and over again, but we're never willing to correct the situation. I want to go back and recap. Can you imagine what had been the outcome of this story if the disciples had just learned the lesson the first time it had been taught? 
on that Mount of Transfiguration. Never before had a disciple cast a demon out. Never happened. The opportunity was not presented to Jesus first. It was presented to these disciples. If the disciples had learned the lesson first on that Mount of Transfiguration, the story completely changed. That father would have come to those disciples and said, My son, he's a lunatic. He cast himself onto the fire. He cast himself into the water. Can you do something to help me? And those disciples would have said, In the name of Jesus Christ, the devil, I rebuke thee. Believe him. No, they wouldn't have to repeat it. They wouldn't have had to say it over and over again. If they had just learned the lesson the first time, the miraculous would have taken place. They wouldn't have gone to Jesus and said, Jesus, the Father wouldn't have gone to him and said, Jesus, I went to your disciples, but they couldn't do anything for me. Can you? Because it would have transpired in the disciples' life. They missed the opportunity for the miraculous to take place in their life because they didn't learn the lesson that Jesus Christ had them. We've got to give the disciples credit, though. Because they did come to Jesus. They said, God, it's not happening in us. Why not? And what do we do to change it? They weren't content with not seeing the miraculous take place in their life. And I want to ask you that question this morning. Outside of you hearing this message, will you leave this afternoon and be content with never seeing the miraculous in your life? Because I have no doubt that many of you have gone years and years and years without seeing anything miraculous take place in your life. You don't feel God's presence. You don't know His power. There may be somebody in this room today, and you don't even know for sure that heaven is your home. If you were to die today, you have no idea where you would spend eternity. When the Bible is very clear that those that have sinned will spend an eternity in hell, and that there's only one way to heaven, that's through Jesus Christ, through His gift of salvation, through what He offers us, and we simply need to receive it. For you, this morning, the miraculous may be that you accept Jesus Christ, but you've got to learn the lesson. It takes a little bit of faith. Or you can keep making the perverse decisions and in denial, avoiding what the consequences would be, just go ahead and continue to live your life. The decision is completely up to you. You can't ignore the invitation this morning to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. But you will continue to not see the miraculous. And you will continue to be faithless and perverse. For some this morning, the miraculous would be healing in your marriage. You want things to get right. You want it to be right. But you got to demonstrate a little bit of faith that God can perform this. For some, it's healing in your hearts from past wrongs, from bitterness. I don't know what it is, but there's something in your heart that's just hurting you. And God wants to perform the miraculous. He wants to heal that wound. But you'll never see it because of that faith. There's some this morning that sit in this room and really, if it all were to be boiled down and the truth put on display, you really could care less about Christianity because you don't ever see anything happen. You're too attached to the temporary things of this life. You're too attached to the world. You're too attached to your pleasures and to your fun, to your addictions, to your habits. 
Don't want to give them up. And the reason you'll never see the miraculous take place in your life is because you'll never demonstrate the faith in Jesus Christ that he can take care of those addictions, that he can take care of those struggles. Not just the addictions to an alcoholic drink or the addiction to a cigarette or the addiction to pornography or the addiction to things. You can see the miraculous take place in your life through Jesus Christ, through faith. For some, the miraculous this morning was you would actually see personal growth in your life through your relationship with God. It would be a miracle for you if you actually opened your Bible tomorrow morning and actually just the Lord just slapped you upside down the face and said, here, here, son. And you're just like, oh, this is so awesome. It would be a miracle for you. And you would welcome it if it came. But it's going to require something. Faith. Maybe it's the salvation of a loved one. You've been praying for them for years. Witnessing to them for years. You're so scared to death that they'll be this illustration, this story this morning, this man who died this past week without accepting Jesus Christ as Savior. You're scared to death that that's going to be them. But you just don't have quite that faith. There's a countless number of things this morning that could be the miraculous for you. God wants to see you accomplish those things through his strength. But you'll never see it happen when you work, when it's time to worship. It'll never happen when you're busy living the model Christian life, but not taking time to sit still and learn the lessons. It'll never happen when you're weak, when it's time for warfare. When you have no personal walk with God, there's no substance. As a result, there's no faith. So as the battles present themselves, you never see victory. It's constant defeat. You feel that way? You're constantly defeated in your Christian life because you're weak when it's time for warfare. Maybe you'll never see it because you wonder why they always waver. You know the answers. The why questions are there. You know the answer to the question, but you constantly waver. Always questioning why, but never putting your flesh under subjection to the Spirit. So it's up, down, up, down, up, down. Cycles in your life, but never moving anywhere. you got to have faith. And in the closing statement this morning, faith in faith, faith in faith does not perform the miraculous. And a lot of times, we as Christians talk and hear so much about faith that we have faith that faith can perform something. Faith doesn't perform anything. God does. Don't have faith in your faith this morning. Have faith in God. He's the one that will perform it. He's the one that will work it out. He's the one that will make you strong in those times of warfare. He's the one that will help you settle that question why. He's the one that will teach you when you just want to work. Not your faith. Faith is required, but it needs to be faith in God. I would ask you to stand with me this morning if you would.